I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest I ever came to the Beatles. We have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, long. Cheers. So welcome back to the United States of Dramerica. Now this is a particularly exciting episode for me. There's a lot of personal whiskey history bound up into this one. So I'm, I'm delighted to have with us today the, the legendary Lorne Cousins. Hey Dan, how are you? Very nice to be here. Fantastic. So the reason I'm so excited about this and why this is a sort of personal whiskey journey for me is I've had Balvenie 50 twice in my life, both times served to me from a small vial by Lorne. Um, we have done probably between, probably about 10 different tastings we've been together. Uh, either I've invited you to help us with something at the consular or you've kindly invited me to do something. And um, so it's all very exciting for me because you're one of my favorite people to drink whiskey with. We've done it in at least three different cities, maybe four. Yep. So, um, I've got my killer opening question, but before we do that, you have to tell me what your new job title is, because I think you're on about your third job since we started drinking together. Yes, that's very true, Dan. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, you're one of my favourite people, period, but also to drink whiskey with, so... Very kind of you. <laughs> very nice to be here. And the bill's in the post for that $50. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, when, when you and I met, I was West Coast Ambassador for Balvenie Scotch Whiskey. Uh, for four years and then I was lucky enough to become a national ambassador so I was in New York for three years doing that and I've now moved over to our sister, big sister, Glenfiddich. So I'm the associate brand manager for Glenfiddich Scotch Whiskey for the US. So it's nice to be back in LA. Fantastic. So you've represented Balvenie, you now represent Glenfiddich. So the obvious question to ask is what was it like playing bagpipes for Madonna? <laughs> well, <laughs> well yeah, every time I meet Lorne and introduce him to someone, I say he's a whiskey ambassador, but the most important thing you need to know about him, he used to play bagpipes for Madonna. So let's just get that story out of the way, and then we can talk about you know the day-to-day of being a whiskey ambassador. Uh, some similarities, uh, but very different, obviously. Yes, so I was very fortunate enough to, to play with the lady herself in 2004. I played bagpipes with her on the reinvention tour. Uh, so yes, that was a great experience. We, we toured around the US for nine months, did 56 shows, played almost live to one million people. So Fantastic. it was amazing playing, playing Scottish bagpipes. Now you're a, obviously, you're a serious piper. Oh yes, I like to think uh, so, yes. So when you were a wee boy, taught to play bagpipes by your father? I, actually, it was my teacher called Pipe Major Tony Wilson in Campbelltown. Uh, but my grandfather did play, I kind of got the inspiration from my grandfather, but uh, Tony was my teacher, and Tony was the pipe major who played with the Campbelltown pipe band on the record Mull of Kintyre with uh, Paul McCartney. Fantastic. So there was kind of a link there. Um, and then, bizarrely, it's funny how the world goes, 
30 years later, I was asked to play bagpipes at Stella's wedding, Stella McCartney's wedding, Paul's daughter. And my father knew Paul and Tony knew Paul. So I played bagpipes at Stella's wedding in 2005, 2006. And one of the guests at the time was a certain lady called Madonna, because they're best friends. And uh, Madonna was there, and I didn't really think much of it, but she walked past and said hello. Thank goodness, that was Madonna. Didn't think more about it. Two years later, I got a call late at night in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and it's from our agent saying, Madonna would like to speak to you. I said, oh goodness, so... Uh, and I was actually in the shower, Madonna called and left a voice message. <coughs> <coughs> Hi, this is Madonna in LA, could you call me back? So, so it wasn't her people, it was Madonna? It was Madonna herself, yeah. Fantastic. So then <coughs> I called back and I felt, heard myself saying, Hi, it's Lauren, can I speak to Madonna, please? <laughs> sure enough, she came to the phone. And uh, we started chatting and she was asking about the bagpipes and the drums. And she'd seen us opposite the wedding. And uh, she was very interested and said, hey, could I incorporate that into my show? And I said, yes, you could, yep. And then she said, well, would you like to come and play in the show and come and tour with me? I said, all right. <laughs> and I said, I had a job at the time. I was a lawyer in Scotland doing property law for nine years. So how does so that work? You, you, you go into the office and say, hey, guys, um, I'm going to need a little bit of time off from property law. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I went into the office the next day. Well, I said to her, look, leave it with me. So I went into the office and it took about a week. But they were actually, it was Turk and Connell, and they were very good about it at the time. And I think they probably saw the advantage in it. And they said, yeah, we'll go with our blessing. So I phoned her back a week later and said, yes, we can do it. Fantastic. So I um, went out to L.A., and we'd a sort of week of rehearsals. I suppose you were probably still in sort of probation at that point. So I remember coming out here, getting to La Cienega, and I had a friend from Scotland, Stevie Kilbride, because we needed someone to teach the dancers drumming, because she liked the tenor drumming. It's a very great visual display. So Stevie was recommended to me, so Stevie and I came out to L.A., and Stevie bought his drums and his kit and everything and got here. And panic stations the morning of the rehearsal or, or audition with Madonna, his drum skin burst. Nasty thing to happen to you. That's what I think happens to a lot of people in LA. Um, so, so, is that a rare occurrence? No, it's, it costs quite a lot when you're travelling, apparently. So. Okay, you know, the pressure on the. Yeah, oh, so we got here and it was burst. So, poor Stevie and I running around West Hollywood trying to find a drum shop. Now, in those days, there were still music shops in LA. And there was one in La Cienega, it's now a tile shop, but it was an old traditional, you know, rock and roll drum shop. So we went in and luckily got a drum skin and fixed up the drum, got to the studio just in time and uh, met Madonna. And, and Did you reveal to Madonna that you nearly had a big no, never technical is. problem? This is the first time that anyone's oh, ever right. heard this. <laughs> the world first. So if you're listening, Madonna, Lorne is sorry he lied to you. <laughs> Extraordinary. Yeah, so we did the rehearsal and played a few tunes and then she said, well, go into the studio with me, with Stuart, Stuart Price actually, was our producer. So we went there and we were there till two in the morning recording different things and we finally made a track and the guys worked on it all night and sent it to her and then we got the word the next morning that she liked it. That's and it was a So that was where the track was recorded in the Sunset Marquee Studios, yeah. And then you went on tour all over America? Yeah. Living, is it, they do it on buses or planes, how does it work? No, we had, a, we had our own plane actually, yeah. Of course yep. you did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was a private plane and we used to lie at different airports and, and I'm trying to think, it was about 20 cities we did. Fantastic. Yeah. So, obviously a lot of people play bagpipes um, and, you know, I know you still do the sort of marching band, sort of traditional thing, mm -hmm. even out in America, people love all that here. Not many people get to do that version of, of playing baps. Like, do you think, was it good for bagpiping, for doodle sacks? Yes. Was it good for them to uh, 
to sort of be part of something mainstream for Madonna? Do you think it was sort of it brought that into an awareness beyond the traditional Scots? Yes, that's true, Dan. It did. You're right. It shone a spotlight on it. I hope in a good way because it <coughs> it got the blessing of the piping community. So I was very fortunate in that way because we still tried to keep it traditional. And to be fair, Madonna wanted that as well. Actually, she was very keen on that that it didn't lose the integrity of the music. Mm. I remember asking about the dress, what we were to wear, the kilts, and she, I said, do you want this modern kilt? I said, no, I want it to look like it was a hundred years ago, and I want to keep the integrity of the music. So the music that we did was actually a part of a pibra, which is like a 200-year-old tune, mm. and then a Scottish trust bass. So the integrity of the music was kept. Right. And so the piping community got behind it, and then, as you say, millions of young people got to see it as well, so it brought piping Fantastic. to a wider audience, yeah. Did she ever ask to try the bagpipes? No, she didn't actually. Theoretically, we could just make this the Madonna uh, episode of this <laughs> podcast, but there's much more to your whiskey life than just Madonna. No offence, Madonna, again, if you're listening. So, um, you are not the only whiskey ambassador I know who at some point also worked as an actor and a model. Um, so that was part of your your journey at one time as well, wasn't it? It was. <coughs> um, I suppose when I was out here in LA doing music at the time, it's not that easy to do the arts, as you know. So everyone tries to do other things as well to supplement their income. So I did a spot of acting. I would never claim to be an actor. <laughs> but I did, did appear in a few things randomly. <laughs> but I really to supplement income, I suppose. It's like everyone in LA. What, there's one, I can't remember which it is now. There's one thing that you said you'd been in which was quite iconic, even if you were just an extra. Was it a medical I, drama or yeah, something? Or? Well, it was a drama, yes. <laughs> the Grey's Anatomy. Oh, yes, that's yes, right. That's, sorry, Grey's Anatomy. And then Nip Tuck, I remember appearing in. But yeah, it was all fun and it helped pay the, pay the bills. Very good. Now, um, this is a whiskey podcast, as we sometimes forget. And so um, we're going to talk about whiskey. Let's have some whiskey because it seems silly oh. not to drink some. So why don't you open this up and um, well, tell us what we're drinking for a start. Well, both you and I are actually very fortunate, Dan. This is a, a world's first, a US first. Um, this is going to be the new Glenfiddich, which is coming out in the US in the next month. So I think you and I are the first people, certainly in California, to taste it. Mm, uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's Glenfiddich Grand Cru. So it's a 23-year-old single malt Glenfiddich, uh, aged in mostly American oak. So it's about, about 90% American oak, maybe 10% European oak, 23 years. And then it goes into beautifully seasoned French oak cuvee wine casks, okay. which held the wine which was on to become champagne. So 23 years and then four to six months in these beautiful French... Because William Grant pioneered the finishing. Yes, that's true, Dan, we did. Yep. Uh, David Stewart, <coughs> excuse me, in the 1980s pioneered finishing. Whose name is on all the bottles and who you introduced me to, I think, at least twice. Ah, yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. that's right, Dan. Yep. Uh, so David, 1983 the Balvenie Classic was the first finished single malt. So they're very innovative, you know, we've done a lot of things like that. David especially is very innovative. So is this your first French go, or at least your first big French go? It probably is, um, I'm trying to think. We've experimented with various things. Glenfiddich did a red wine finish at some point, uh, but this is certainly for Balvenie, will be. And yeah, um, so it's, it is probably, yeah, 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 that's right. Anyway, right. so let's try the Glenfiddich, shall we? Yes, please do. I love that noise, it always sounds it? fantastic. <laughs> so, there might be some background noise on this podcast, and I make no apologies for that. Lord and I are drinking on the, at the balcony of his hotel, because we both enjoy a drink, and the best 
places to drink drinks, particularly when you live in LA, are nice places sitting down. So yep. we've drunk on balconies before. Um, we've drunk at the Indianapolis 500. Um, we've drunk in New York on balconies overlooking the city. So drinking on a beautiful balcony with a view of downtown and. I think we can see the building that's obscuring the view of a Hollywood sign, but yeah. at least we know it's somewhere there. Yeah. So, um, wonderful to see you, sir. You do, do it. Yes. Sure. Okay, that's a great. It's a little bit different from. I've drunk a lot of your Malvenies yes. and Glenfiddichs, but that's a little bit, a little bit of a different, something it's a bit special. Yes, I'm glad you like it. <clears throat> very light, subtle, very elegant. As uh, see most American oak, so you get the light, sweet honey, vanilla flavours. And then maybe a hint of you get the wine casks on the nose, perhaps yeah. just a gentle hint, and then the uh, Brian Kinsman, very very, uh, what would you say, descriptive tasting notes of sweet brioche, apricots, honey. I think brioche is the one that sticks out for me, maybe from the, from the French wine cask. But yeah. yeah, it's a lovely, delicate dram. To see, very very elegant. This feels a bit like um, like the late late show or something, where you bring on a guest and. You know, to the members of the public, this is just normal guests, but he's here to push his his film or his music video. And this is the first of our episodes where we've got some product placement going on, but that's okay. That's right, because, that, no, man. it's fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> Let's go back to McDonough. No, no. <laughs> I mean, this is theoretically a whiskey podcast, so we should be. It's it's good to be sampling uh, real whiskey together, and um, as well as just the old drinks and telling stories. It's also good to to drink new drinks together while telling some stories. So, how did you get into the world of whiskey? So let's start, not the professional world of whiskey, but as a drinker. We've, we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before. There's a lot of Scottish people who don't drink whiskey because of uh, alcoholic uncles and fathers and so on. A, a higher number than I expected. Uh, and a lot of people don't... I think every, Americans think all Scottish people drink whiskey all the time, but that's not quite the case. So how did you get into it? Uh, I grew up in Campbelltown on the west coast of Scotland. And Campbelltown was or is one of the whiskey capital of the world. At that time it was, maybe 100 years ago, there were about 34 different distilleries in Campbelltown. That's how it got its region status. So, as you know, I'm sure your listeners know, there are five regions in Scotland, Islands, Lowlands, Bayside, Isla, and Campbelltown is kind of the forgotten region. But there were 34 distilleries there, and some of the buildings are still there, like the garages and bus stations, where former distilleries, so you can see it all over the town. So that's where I grew up. So whiskey was always around, for sure. Um, and then at university, I remember going to a whiskey tasting, and just to give a bit of balance here, that was a Macallan whiskey tasting. It's good. So um, it was beautiful. I remember that. Probably the first whiskey tasting. Lovely whiskey. Which university do you go to? We didn't get Macallan at my university. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we had teachers. <laughs> was it Bells? Uh, Glasgow. Yep. So there was the. Uh, the did you study Society. law? I did. Yes, yep. that's right. Yep. But I remember being part of the Gaelic Society and remember them having a whiskey tasting, which McAllen did. So it's kind of funny what sticks in your mind is the first one. And it was great, it was beautiful. I, I was probably 19 or 20 at that time. Legal age in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. no, it's okay. <laughs> I should say. I think the, the statute of limitations is passed on uh, underage drinking. But, and it was legal, yeah, so that's yeah. fine. So yeah, that was probably the first. And then, so yeah, I always loved whiskey. My family loved whiskey and everyone. So um, it was part of growing up. I suppose in piping and pipe bands, it's always part of growing up as well. Yeah. yeah. Is there a lot of... Whiskey drunk after piping shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fair to say, but not so much before. Actually, pipers are quite, quite, quite well behaved. Okay. I think I would like to take it seriously, but afterwards, a lot, <laughs> a lot of tramming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there is that changing? How much whiskey is drunk in proportion to how much was drunk when you were twenty years ago? Well, it's funny, probably more actually. 
maybe it's just growing older, but remember in Scotland growing up in the 80s and 90s, my compatriots and guys the same age would be drinking vodka. But now they're drinking Scotch. Scottish vodka? Anything, yeah. But <laughs> and <laughs> Scottish, most vodka yeah. made in Scotland, actually. Yeah. Fun fact. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, now maybe by the turning late 30s, they're, they're drinking Scotch. I don't know if it's just an age thing, but more yeah. and more people are drinking Scotch, I think, and more and more younger people. So probably more, actually, yeah. So you've, you've been a drinker of Scots for a long time. Yeah. And when did it become a potential career for you? That was when I was in LA. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a good friend of mine, Mitch Bouchard, who you know, yep. I'm a fitting master at the time, he told me that there was a, a vacancy and they were looking for someone for Balvenie. They say I was always interested in Scotch whiskey and mm. I love Balvenie, I knew about it actually as a brand. So uh, that was seven, eight years ago. So we've had a whiskey ambassador on here before, but I'm not sure I asked her the question. So what's the job advert for a whiskey ambassador? Because like I say, a lot of, I know at least three people who used to be actors or models or both. You just need to be, you don't even need to be Scottish. So what does the advert say? Must be able to sort of, strong constitution? Oh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's really, it's about public consumer engagement, engaging the consumer, education of the brand. Uh, you'll be doing some media events, PR. Uh, there's a small element of commercial element, sales, but not so much. It's really educating the public, engaging the public, engaging the consumers, talking about the brand. Uh, that being good, being good public, publicly, yeah, that, that's what I would say. And obviously, you've done, you must have done what a thousand, probably, tastings? yes, probably, because it's a proper, it's a proper job. You're, you're working right. maybe yep. not seven nights a week, but sometimes <coughs> five or six. Yeah, I remember when I was in the West Coast, travelling eighty-eight thousand miles a year, one year. Yeah, so you're all over the West Coast of the US, different cities, maybe doing. Could do 90 or 100 tastings a year. Wow. So, yeah, it was great. It's great, great, great life. Yeah. That's fantastic. And you you did some quite innovative ones. There was one in, in San Francisco you did, some kind of clever technological one. Well, you, that's right. Uh, we decided to engage the tech community in Northern California and we did a series of events. And myself and Mitch did one where actually we did a tasting in one venue and Mitch was in the other and we linked to it. Yeah, video, so it wasn't Skype, it was a video link. Yeah. And so there's two audiences doing a cheers together. But we also did one <coughs> in Northern California with uh, Google, one with Facebook, one with YouTube. And it was like a link to all over the US, so everyone was in different spaces, but we had a, a link, video link. So we did a virtual cheers. Uh, there must have been about a thousand people did a virtual cheers all at once across the US. Fantastic. And we called it iDram. iDram, that's right, iDram. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> So let's, let's talk a bit about LA because LA is a ridiculous place and when we were here you'd often find yourself doing ridiculous things. I think when I, one of the first meetings you told me about you started telling me about um, a particular, particularly famous Californian former governor who, do you, was it bagpipes and whiskey or just whiskey? <coughs> yes that's right, uh, Arnold, Arnie, yeah. great guy. I think I'm going to talk about this, there's no, no secrets, but we're very fortunate enough. Arnie likes, and this is public record, Arnie likes Scotch whiskey, he also likes cigars, and he likes bagpipes. Yep. And a friend you of mine. Two out of three? <laughs> yes, I can tick all the boxes. That was his favourite friend. <laughs> so, yeah, I was invited to ask to pipe at the party he was having at his house a number of years ago. Christmas party it was. Yeah. And so I could provide the whiskey, obviously, had the bagpipes. Mm -hmm. So we had a great night at a party, and there was a who's who of guests, people from. Slice to loan, people like that, all his friends were there. Fantastic. So here we had a Christmas party at Arnold's house, I played the bagpipes and 
had his drums and cigars. Very nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, and he, I think he's. It's a family thing as well. I think I, I think I met his nephew at one of your oh, yes, right. whiskey tastings. Um, yeah, and that was a cigar and whiskey night. So th- this is the thing about whiskey that I love is it brings people together in a really special way. So you know, LA is full of lots of fan- fascinating people, rich people, not rich people, celebrities, all that stuff. Do you like your <coughs> trips home and your particularly after the hubbub of New York going back to? Sort of the calm life of the Scottish Highlands. Yes, that's very true. My family are all there, so it's great going back. I go to Campbelltown in Kintyre, where I was brought up, so I go there. And my sister Rona is in Edinburgh with her family. And then also we go to the Western Isles, to Lewis, where my mum's family were from. So, yeah, I love to get out, go into the mountains or do things like that, have a dram. Especially in the winter time. I think it's great when you go back and go out when it's windy and stormy and then come back in at night and have a dram by the fire. I think nothing beats it. We did a, an episode of this podcast, it was the last one we did, uh, where I talked to a chap called Mo Fallon, who was Anthony Bourdain's cinematographer, uh, and we, did a, we talked a lot about Anthony Bourdain and about whiskey. Now, you also worked closely with him, because the whole point was the only commercial partnership he had was with Balvenie, and I know that you did these events with him in the Raw Craft series. Do you want to say anything about him and whiskey and all that? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, of course, we're so sorry, so sorry we lost Anthony. He was a great guy. We worked quite closely with him for about three or four years on the Balvenie. It was a raw craft series, and as I say, it was the only partnership we ever did, so we're very proud of that. But very interesting guy, um, and he loved his single malt, he loved the Balvenie. Loved craftsmanship, he, he had a great integrity, so anything that was made by hand, that's why we did this series called Raw Craft, it was about craftsmanship. Um, and I was fortunate enough, I would interview him maybe twice a year, and you were at a number, number of the events. I would interview him twice a year on stage, and we might do three or four shows in a night with a different audience each time, okay. obviously. But same questions. So I had a set list of questions I used to answer him, about, ask him about craftsmanship or whiskey or his life. And he would give you a different answer every time. It's amazing. No retakes, everything was done once. Different answer, interesting answer each time. It was amazing. A great guy to work with. Yeah, and I think. It- with this whole thing about whiskey bringing people together, um, can we talk about Nightcap with Dario? Is that? A oh yes, yeah. yeah. You have so been to that. We have, and that's another <laughs> thing which again is about the power of whiskey in terms of bringing people together. So why don't you say something about the sort of concept of that and how it yeah. plays out? So Dario Franchitti from Scotland, very successful racing driver. I believe he won Indy 500 four times. I think it's three or four times, perhaps three in a row. Uh, Indy 501 when he came over to the US uh, and Dario's a great guy, loves his scotch and we do an event as you know at Indy 500 it's on the Friday night before the uh, before the race on the Sunday and we call it Dario's Nightcap and it's just Dario, myself uh, yourself, you've been and a small group of his friends and contacts in the racing industry so it's invite only, it's about 40 of us and we do it after dinner every year on the Friday night and it's a great night it's a who's who of racing Mario Andretti, people like that, other racing drivers, Dario, his manager, Mickey Ryan's a great guy. So we do this Dario's uh, nightcap every year, which you've been to. So yeah, it's, it's lovely. I look forward to it every year. Yeah, and I think it, again, it's if you did Dario's nightcap with, you know, seven point four percent beer or a, a vodka, I don't. It wouldn't <laughs> have the same thing. Obviously, they're there for him, and it's Indy Five Hundred all there. But there's there's something about standing around with some, you know, legends of the racing world drinking. 
some good Balvenie. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all just part of, and he's Scottish, and it just all brings people together in a wonderful way. Yeah, that's right. You're right, we do pour some great drums. I remember we've had the ton 1401, and we had Balvenie 40 year old one year, so it's nice just to put a couple of wee drums before you go to bed at night, something. So, you, the, the two main companies you've worked for were part of the William Grant family. So, for, for those who don't know as much about this world, see, some of the distilleries are, earn, are owned by big drinks conglomerates, so Pernod Ricard and, and Diageo, and even though the brands are operated individually within that, they're part of these big sort of corporate behemoths. William Grant's still a family-owned company. What, it, for you, is that part of the whole nostalgia of whiskey? Yes, that's very true. Uh, I believe there's three, maybe four I'm just going to pour myself some more if yes, you don't mind. Yes, why not? Seem not to. Yes. There are only three or four family companies left, family-owned institutions left in the whiskey industry. There's about 115 distilleries. So it's Grant's, and then Grant's of Glenfarclas along the road, George Grant, who no relation I understand, and then Springbank, Campbelltown, Mitchells. So there's only about three left that are actually in family. It's great. Um, and the, the culture of the company is definitely different, it's great, it's very relaxed, you're given the freedom to win, uh, to go out there and do things yourself, so it feels like a small company, well, it's not really anymore, but there's definitely a family atmosphere. And then I think you've met Kirsten, Kirsten Grant is now working in the business, Kirsten lived in LA for a year. She's this is the great, great, great yeah, granddaughter? Yeah, six generations on from the okay. Grant, yeah. So Kirsten's now in the family business working in Chicago, so... So yeah, it's great. It's a great, great family to work for. So, the last question I always ask guests, and this was a great question at the beginning of the podcast when people hadn't listened to it yet, but you've obviously heard it, so you know what this question's going to be. But still like to ask it. If you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? What would it be? And where would it be? Wow. And you can't say... Glenfiddich Grand Crew on the balcony of Damn. my Hollywood hotel. Even though this is a special moment, yes. you have to come up with something a little bit more innovative. <laughs> well, uh, the whiskey is probably quite easy, and sorry, I'm <clears throat> biased here, but the Balvenie 12 Double Wood is probably my all-time favourite. Yep. So it would be the Balvenie 12 Double Wood. I think probably on the top of the mountain, the Hebrides of Scotland, overlooking the Atlantic. On a stormy day or hey, a sunny day? Probably a stormy day, yes, okay. you're right. Probably a stormy day, bit of atmosphere. Of which there are plenty. Yes, that's right. A, a raging sea to look at, yeah. Uh, I think this is a bit cheesy, but we're in Hollywood. Someone like Robert De Niro, someone like that, would be cool to sit and talk with. Um, is he a whiskey drinker? He's a gin drinker, actually. He drinks okay. Hendrix. Oh, it's all part of the William Grant family, so <laughs> you are on brand. brand. What a corporate ambassador you are. <laughs> hey, but yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Yeah. Well, the fact that you've actually drunk whiskey with some of the Hollywood legends anyway, it's nice to have a, the one that you haven't drunk with. It's uh, nice to mention them. I can so. see his house over your shoulder, <laughs> Very good. Well, look... Um, this is the 15th, 20th time we've shared a whiskey together, but it's, it's the first time we've recorded it, which is probably for the best. Uh, but it's wonderful to have you on, so thank you very much for joining us, Lord Cousin. No, at all. Cheers. I love scotch. 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 Yep. And don't forget to not just follow us on 
Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. Yeah. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>